You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week of the News and Observer. And with me are Will Doran, also of the NNO, and Lauren Harsh and Colin Campbell of the NC Insider. Uh, we're going to talk about what's going to happen next week in session uh, as lawmakers prepare to come back to Raleigh yet again. And we'll talk about an audit that uh, found 234 missing cars. Um, why they are uh, missing and uh, what might have happened to those. Uh, but And finally, we'll talk to um, Brian Murphy, our D.C. correspondent, uh, about all the goings-on down there, um, tax reform, and uh, a bill to protect the special counsel in the Russia-Trump case, as well as efforts to uh, protect the so-called dreamers. Uh, but first, let's talk about what's happening next week. So, Colin and Lauren, you wrote about the uh, you wrote a preview um, based on this memo that came out from House Speaker Tim Moore's office, and it outlined a number of things that they might take up on the agenda. Um, but actually, the kind of the most interesting thing was what they're not going to take up, um, which is uh, among other things constitutional amendments. So, what had they been? Uh, potentially looking at doing uh, to the state constitution while they were here. Yeah, so we've heard talk for, I guess, several uh, weeks or even months now that constitutional amendments were going to be uh, a big feature of the October session. Uh, There's a bunch of ones that were filed earlier uh, in this year's session that didn't end up getting all the way uh, passed, including a cap on the state's income tax rate, something limiting um, sort of collective bargaining for unions, which of course is already illegal, but there was an effort to put that in the uh, constitution as well. There's one to enshrine in the Constitution the right to hunt and fish. Uh, Basically what these have in common are uh, their amendments that will help drive Republican turnout, um, and that's uh, to some extent a concern for Republicans in the 2018 election. But the word this week, uh, Lauren, you talked to David Lewis, the House Rules Chairman, and the word is that uh, we're not going to get those this week. Yeah, so I talked to uh, David Lewis, and he said, you know, that's just they don't have time for it right now because of uh, redistricting and the schedule with redistricting, they kind of had to put those constitutional amendments on the back burner. So he said those will likely come up in another session. And I had asked specifically if we're going to be looking at a later October session or maybe something later this year because there had been rumors flying around that we would, might come back in November or whatever. Uh, but he said the constitutional amendments will not come up until likely 2018. So we got that to look forward to. And is uh, the potential for appointing judges also on that list as a potential constitutional amendment that now is seems unlikely to come up, or is that still possible? We've heard some possible changes, just, I mean, nothing, nothing sort of official in terms of changes to the judicial system in the form of a constitutional amendment. Um, but I think this is all stuff that uh, they're going to keep talking about probably until the short session in May, um, and then we could see some of these come up. I think May is not too late to get something on the ballot in November 2018, so uh, to the extent they still want to uh, boost some turnout uh, come 2018, they've still got the opportunity to, even if they don't do anything this month. Okay, and uh, whether or not that comes up, they are talking about the uh, changing the way judicial elections are done, and that's in the form of redrawing the districts for judges and DAs. Um, And that's really foremost on the agenda here for next week. Uh, So uh, what might happen there? Um, Yeah, so that's uh, the bill that the 
Uh, House Select Committee on Judicial Redistricting voted out uh, favorably, I think largely along party lines uh, this past week. Um, that's going to uh, apparently go to the House floor next week. Um, probably will also get a more or less party line vote. Uh, and the big question for that, of course, that's the bill that redraws uh, judicial districts for court, uh, district court, superior court, and prosecutorial districts. Uh, Justin Burke came out with a new version of that plan this week that only really made some minor changes. Um, urban counties are still split in a way that uh, you get some rural districts and some urban districts, which pretty much means that you'd probably elect more Republican judges than uh, under the current system where there's uh, not as much division uh, in judicial districts in the urban counties. Um, some changes in how the rural counties are grouped, but not a whole lot of changes outside the urban areas in uh, Burr's plan. Uh, the big question for that is what will the Senate do? Um, if they can get it through the House, uh, which seems fairly likely, uh, there's not been a whole lot of talk from the Senate side as to whether they're supportive of this idea or not. So uh, that's the big question of uh, whether they'll take action or they'll, they'll take the bill and uh, sit on it for a while or come back and change it later or perhaps come up with an idea for a uh, plan for judicial appointments, which is what we've, we keep hearing uh, Phil Berger's chief of staff has been going around talking to judges about the potential for. One other thing on the agenda that intrigued me was that they're going to possibly deal with film credits. Yeah, that was um, an interesting thing I had noticed in the film credit law. Uh, so the legislature during their budget session um, re-upped funding for the film grants. Um, so that's funded this year and next year. But the law that creates the program has an end date of 2020. Uh, and apparently the uh, film office would like to get that extended um it seems like it's far enough away deadline that it's not going to cause any problems, but they're they're trying to get TV series, and I think one of the things you, important in attracting uh, TV shows is the promise that if you start your show here, you can still be filming here in five or six years if it's a successful TV show. Uh, so that's something where they're apparently going to be looking at extending the deadline for that, uh, or the uh, expiration date for that program uh, next week. Okay. And uh, Will, they're going to be uh, potentially looking at uh, overturning some Roy Cooper vetoes. Um, so what should we expect there? Yeah, one of the big ones was uh, the one that we were writing about last week, uh, the funding for Gen X that was tied in with all sorts of other kind of environmental deregulation issues, a uh, very wide-ranging bill there. I, I don't remember the vote count on that exactly, and I think there were also some people missing when they voted on that. So you know, it'll be interesting to see uh, if they do have the votes to overturn that. But that being said, they've overturned every other veto that Cooper has uh, given them this year so far. Um, and, uh, you know, that that obviously ties in with the whole Gen X thing that I wrote about. Um, we talked about that a little bit last week, you know, in Sunday's paper, kind of looked at some of the funding cuts uh, to that. So if you missed my article on that, go back and read it. Um, looked at uh, basically the last decade worth of cuts to Diener and DEQ and, uh, you know, what, what people say that either has or hasn't done. Um, Republicans have been pretty adamant that uh, on this Gen X thing, the money is better spent locally. Uh, the, their bill that Cooper vetoed gave the money to a Local Utilities Commission and uh, UNC Wilmington to look into some of this pollution in the Cape Fear River. Cooper vetoed it, uh, one, because of all of the kind of deregulation issues that were totally unrelated to Gen X that they put in there, and also because he wanted more money and thought that the money should go to DEQ instead. Um, so, you know, you, you kind of have uh, the struggle over, you know, is the money better spent at the state level, at the local level, and, you know, how much money should be spent. Kind of, you know, your, your classic 
Republican versus Democrat talking points, really, is what it boils down to. Anything else that you guys are watching uh, as they come back for, I think, what is probably expected to be a two- or three-day session? Um, uh, I guess the other interesting thing is the newspaper legal notices bill that we've talked about on here before. Uh, that appears to be poised to be an end run around Roy Cooper's veto. So Cooper vetoed this bill uh, that changes the way newspaper legal notices are required. So right now, if you're a local government uh, or an attorney and there's a certain type of proceeding or public hearing you're having, you've got to place a classified ad in the newspaper. Um, the bill that passed both the House and Senate uh, months ago would uh, create an exemption for Guilford County as sort of a pilot program to test out uh, local governments putting those on their government websites instead. Uh, that bill was vetoed by Roy Cooper and apparently doesn't have the votes for an override, at least on the House side. Uh, but the legislature is undeterred from uh, doing that. So they're looking at creating a local bill uh, specific to Guilford County. So same provision, but you would lose some of this uh, stuff that was in the original bill about workers' comp on a statewide basis. Um, and if they can pass that in the House and Senate, Local bills don't go to the governor, so Cooper won't have any say, and they could essentially accomplish the same thing without actually having to override uh, Cooper's veto of this issue. So that's one to look out for next week. Okay. And uh, before we uh, break and go to headliner, Will, uh, real quick, give us a rundown of this audit that came out this week. Um, the uh, Why are these cars that were impounded from uh, drunk drivers and people who are fleeing police, um, why are they uh, missing? Yeah, well, first, I guess we should give some background. Uh, you know, if you get a, I think it's a felony DWI, or if you, you know, try and uh, speed to elude uh, being pulled over by the cops, the state is allowed to take your car. And they've done that with, I think, thousands of cars over the last few years. It's a pretty lucrative little side business for the state government. Um, but the state doesn't hold on to all those cars after they take them. They've hired uh, these two private companies that contract to, you know, basically be in charge of this. And um, there's a political angle here. Um, one of the companies, their uh, lawyer and lobbyist is the wonderfully named Sandy Sands, a former legislator. Um, and some of the other companies, you know, they've given money to, you know, some of the more powerful politicians in the legislature um, and, you know, have kind of secured contracts after giving that. Of course, you know, the politicians say that, you know, the donations have nothing to do with contracts. They just are fine companies who do a good job. Anyways, um, these companies that are in charge of holding onto these cars, according to the auditor's office, can't account for 234 of them. In total, those cars are worth around uh, just under $650,000. Um, and what these companies are supposed to do is auction the cars off, and they get to keep some of the proceeds and some of the proceeds go back to the state. Some of, most of the proceeds that the state goes go directly to the public schools, and then a small chunk also just, I, I believe, goes to just the general fund. Um, but mostly it's to fund the public schools. And so there's, you know, $650,000 worth of vehicles out here that, according to the auditors, the companies can't say where they are, what's happened to these cars. Um, the If you read the audit, it says, you know, it's possible that you know, employees of these companies are, you know, just out there driving the cars around when they should be on these impound lots, or that, you know, maybe they sold them on on the sly and, you know, just pocketed all the money instead of giving the state their due. They're not sure. 
The companies say that there's been no wrongdoing. This is all just a big misunderstanding. The state is mistaken. Um, they say in some cases they've given state paperwork that the state can't find, apparently. And the companies also admit that they don't have all of the paperwork to prove that these cars are missing or aren't missing. Um, but they say that they're sure that paperwork is going to turn up eventually to, uh, you know, prove that there's been no wrongdoing here. So uh, right now it's headed to the DMV, the I think it's like the License and, and Theft Division, and they're going to be investigating it further. But, um, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars here that uh, could be missing from the public schools uh, and possibly in the pockets of these politically connected companies, or maybe it's just all a big misunderstanding. Mm. Save your paperwork, people. Um, okay, uh, that's it for now, but we'll be right back with uh, Brian Murphy and uh, talking about what's going on in Washington, and then we'll come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Today, my new dad threw a barbecue. I burnt everything. And then we played catch. I broke Mr. Lewis's window. And then, somehow, my hand. My hand! And then my dad even let me drive his car. The hospital's on the right! It was a rough day. It was a great day. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of kids in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. And welcome back to Domecast. And now, as promised, uh, here's Brian Murphy, our man in D.C., uh, here to talk about what's going on in Washington uh, from a North Carolina perspective. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, so a couple things this week involving Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina. Uh, one was uh, the latest in the Trump-Russia investigation um, where uh, it's been, uh, uh, Senator Tillis has been trying to protect the special counsel doing that investigation um, from being fired potentially by President Trump. And uh, his bill to protect uh, Robert Mueller got a hearing this week. Uh, so what was that like? Yeah, um, Senator Tillis, along with Senator Coons of Delaware, have sponsored a bill um, it was Senator Tillis's bill. He, he got Senator Coons, a Democrat, to uh, co-sponsor it with him. His bill would allow a fired special counsel, in this case uh, Robert Mueller, to have a hearing before a three-judge panel within 14 days of the firing to determine whether or not that firing was for good cause. Um, and if it wasn't for good cause, he'd, he'd be allowed to be reinstated as the special counsel. Um, there was a hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee, of which Tillis is a member, um, to debate Tillis's bill, as well as one sponsored by um, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. They brought in four constitutional law professors, constitutional scholars, and, and they had a whole um, myriad of, of opinions on whether or not either bill was constitutional, both bills were constitutional, uh, for certain provisions in the bills were constitutional. Uh, at the end of the hearing, Chuck Grassley and Diane Feinstein, the two leaders of the committee, seemed confused as to what to do next. Uh, given that you know neither bill seemed to be 100% constitutional, at least according uh, to to these constitutional law scholars, mostly on the separation of powers, um, uh, you know, constitutional theory that uh, this would provide the special counsel with inordinary powers. Um, you know, a, a cabinet member, the attorney general, for instance, could be fired with for any cause at all or no cause at all, um, but the special counsel would then be put in a special class 
where he could not be removed from office, and that would in some ways put him above the attorney general. So the constitutional law scholars had a lot of questions, and I'm not sure, given their questions, what the next step is for this bill. You know, I talked to a professor at Wake Forest who made the point to me that probably the best thing to come out of the hearing and the best thing to come out of Tillis's bill and Graham's bill is the sense, uh, the political will that comes out of it, the political will that shows the president, hey, we're not going to take a dismissal of Robert Mueller for no reason um, standing to, uh, lying down. We're, we're going to stand up to protect uh, this guy. And he, so even if they can't pass a bill, um, the professor at Wake Forest told me that there is certainly value in putting the bill in, you know, submitting the bill, introducing the bill, having the hearing, letting uh, the president know that, listen, there is a checks and balances here, and if you fire the special counsel for no reason, um, Congress is going to do something about it. And do you think this fact that he sort of is standing up to the president here is helpful for Tillis, or does that hurt him? Yeah, you know, Tillis made it very clear in the hearing, after the hearing when I spoke to him, that he supports President Trump, he supports President Trump's agenda. You know, he's uh, Tillis is couching this in terms of political uh, will, that he's showing uh, a backbone that says, look, nobody in the, you know, you all want to do this when you're in the minority. Everybody would love to introduce these bills when they're in the minority party. I'm standing up for the Senate as a member of the majority, taking the heat and saying this is good governance. This is, uh, you know, a smart move for special counsels all down the line, Republican, Democrat, independent. Um, he, he, he's couching it in terms of political courage, that he has the courage to, to put in a bill that may be unpopular with his president, even though he supports the president, because it's the right thing to do. Tillis has done a couple things lately that have been that have made headlines that would not be uh, presumably not be all that uh, popular with the Trump voters and the base of his party. And the other one um, deals with uh, DACA, uh, the program that uh, Trump is trying has ended and wants Congress to deal with over the next few months. Um, so Tillis has uh, introduced a bill. Um, that would protect the uh, the dreamers, as they call them, um, that were ha- had been protected under that uh, Obama era program. So, what's the latest with that? Yeah, this is you know Tom Tillis is trying to make a name for himself on immigration, and and he's not always completely in step with what I would call the Trump wing of the Republican Party. In this case, um, the, the deferred uh, action on childhood arrivals; these are kids that were brought into the United States by their parents, uh, often at a very young age. They you know, I've seen them described as American in every way except by birth. Um, they went to American schools. Uh, many are going to American colleges or serving in the, in the military. This would offer a path to citizenship, which is one thing that has um, the Trump wing of the party very angry at Tom Tillis or, or angry at this bill over. It's also sponsored by uh, James Lankford out of Oklahoma and Orrin Hatch out of Utah. So there is some Republican support behind it, some heavyweights behind it. Um, this would allow for a 15-year period for, for these kids, many of whom are already teenagers or in their 20s. Um, they could, for five years, they could get conditional permanent residence, which would allow them to work um, not, and not be at um, risk of deportation, which is what the Obama-era uh, regulation did. It, it stopped these kids from being deported. They didn't have to worry about being deported. They could go to school, um, you know, work without the fear of deportation. Um, this would this bill would give them five years of conditional, then ten years of legal permanent status that would have to be renewed after five, and then after that they would get a green card, 
they would be allowed to apply for citizenship, um, and, and that has some people rankled. Uh, however, there's a lot of support for this issue in, in the country at large. I've seen it poll at about 85, 86 percent that believes these children should not be deported. They, they real, in many cases, don't even know. Uh, they, they may know what country they came from, but know nothing of Mexico or Guatemala or whatever country they came from. They, they don't speak the language. Um, and so this, you know, um, Tillis is couching this as a conservative act that would uh, make these people, these children or young adults now pay back taxes. Um, not commit crimes, be gainfully employed, or serve in the military. Um, there really are some stipulations as to how these um, children or young adults could become, uh, you know, legal permanent residents in the United States and then eventually citizens. Um, and, it, and it wouldn't disrupt the workforce. There's been a lot of talk that, um, you know, these kids are, are already part of the American workforce, and it would be more of a disruption if they were at risk of deportation. Um, that's at least how they're selling it from the right. Um, on the left, there's some criticism that it's too long of a path, it's too arduous, um, that, that these kids should, should get a little bit more immediate relief. And then on the right, there are complaints that this is amnesty, which Tom Tillis has been fighting, fighting that label for a long time. So this was the week that the, uh, the health care bill uh, officially died again, and it was also the week that uh, the tax reform started to uh, come into focus uh, in terms of what the Republicans want to do. Um, we, North Carolina has a couple of lawmakers, uh, in con- a couple of congressmen who are um, leading conservative caucuses, um, Mark Meadows and uh, Mark Walker. Um, and I know they're very uh, concerned that Republicans keep their promises uh, to their base. Uh, what's what's been their uh, reaction as these things have uh, as healthcare has fallen apart and uh, tax reform reform has come up as a uh, as the new uh, agenda? Well, they they both you know I, they've both been very vocal on both of on both issues. I think uh, on the healthcare, they believe that it's imperative that. You know, the House did pass a, a bill that would repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, the Senate, uh, through many, many opportunities, they've had at least four bills come up, have not been able to get the votes, uh, the, the 50 votes that they've needed to get that through. And so Meadows and Walker and, and their res, rep, uh, respective caucuses have been very upset that the Senate has been unable to keep those promises. And they've been harping on it. They think they should come back at health care again in the future. Uh, but tax reform, I think, is something that may unify the Republican Party a little bit more. Uh, they believe they they released an outline. Uh, the Trump administration, along with congressional leaders, released an outline. Both Meadows's Freedom Caucus and Walker's Republican Study Committee have both backed the the framework. There's an outline. It, it talks about getting from seven tax brackets down to three, at 12 percent, 25 percent, and 35 percent. However, you know the the details have not really been released. There's no. Uh, they have not released what income levels would be hit by each tax bracket. They haven't released exactly what uh, tax deductions or loopholes will be closed or eliminated or kept. So there, there's a lot more work to do. We talked about a time frame on this, possibly bleeding into next year, including into next May. That's something that Walker and Meadows desperately do not want to happen. Then, then you're talking about the primary season um, for the 2018 elections. They would like to get this wrapped up by Thanksgiving, Christmas at the latest. Um, but the chances of that, of, of Republicans coming together, there's already some splintering. Uh, this bill would, currently you're allowed to write off your state and local taxes uh, on your federal taxes. 
Um, that's obviously a huge benefit for high-income, uh, high-tax-paying states like California, New York, New Jersey, uh, typically you know, Democratic states. But they do have representatives, Republican representatives in those states, and the Republican representatives from those states are already coming out against that. They would like to see that removed from the bill. Um, there's, a sta- there's a doubling of the standard deduction, which some people are worried will basically eliminate the mortgage tax uh, deduction. So anytime you talk about tax policy, there's going to be people jumping in on, on keeping their pet project, basically. And so I think Republicans believe that they have enough support to, to maybe move this quickly, uh, and they worry that the longer it takes, uh, as we saw with health care, uh, the more opposition is able to rally against it and, and maybe pick parts of the bill apart. So it'll be interesting to see. I think both Meadows and Walker particularly believe that if the Republicans cannot get tax reform done, having already failed on health care, that it may lead to a big blowout in the 2018 election. Yeah, and, and Walker expressed that view at a, a press conference where he got into some hot water for some comments, um, which was actually the first of a couple times he uh, was getting flack over uh, comments he made this week. Uh, just real quick before we go, uh, what happened and why were these uh, remarks, uh, uh, why did they draw so much fire? Yeah, Walker, uh, held as leader of the Republican Study Committee, which includes over 150 Republicans in the House, it's the largest caucus, uh, was having an event that basically said, hey, look, we have three months, you know, basically until the end of this year to get health care, uh, repeal and replaceable Obamacare done, uh, tax, tax reform taken care of, and border security. That's the message he wanted to get out there. Unfortunately, he was trying to make a comment about uh, that the Republican Study Committee was not just uh, men, not just white men, that it included many women. Uh, he made the unfortunate gaffe of, of referring to them as eye candy, even pointing out that if it wasn't sexist, I would call them eye candy. Um, which is basically the same as calling them eye candy in front of many cameras and many reporters. Uh, and, you know, he owned it. He, he told me yesterday that he certainly owns that comment. That was a mistake. He did not mean to offend any of the women in, in his committee. He was simply trying to point out that there are actual, you know, there are women in the Republican study committee. Um, you know, that was a self-inflicted wound, and, and I think he'll admit it. The next day he was quoted in the New York Times as talking about um, – that deficit spending and the fact that these tax cuts may increase the deficit, you know, is a pro- is a, is a Republican talking point when Democrats are in charge, which has, you know, been a Democratic um, talking point for a long time. That Republicans don't really care about the debt; they only care about the debt when, um, you know, when it, when a Democrat's in charge. They don't care about the debt when there's a Republican president. Um, Walker was quoted, and, and Walker is a deficit hawk. He talks about it all the time. Uh, he was quoted in, in that context in the New York Times seemingly saying, yeah, we don't care about the deficit. He says those co- that those comments were taken way out of context, that what he was explaining was this mindset of Republicans that, hey, we don't have to worry about the debt now. And he was saying that's completely wrong. That's the mindset we've got to get rid of. Um, it sort of went viral on the Internet. I think Walker was able to clean that one up, and I think his reputation, the fact that he talks about deficits and debt all the time, this sort of helped him out there. Um, you know, later in the New York Times article, he was even talking about how imperative it is that Republicans worry about the debt. So I think that was simply a misunderstanding. But you know, coming on the heels of the eye candy comment, certainly not the greatest week for Mark Walker. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for briefing us on what's going on there, and uh, we'll have you back on uh, in an upcoming episode. Uh, thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for listening. Yep. And we'll be right back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Did you know 
that North Carolina judges used to ride on horseback across the state to deliver justice? Today, there are more than 1,000 judicial representatives in our state. And through the NCAOC Speakers Bureau, you can request to have a representative speak at your event. Representatives are ready to inform your community about the importance of the North Carolina judicial system, and their visits are completely free. We can't promise they'll show up on a horse, though. Visit celebrate.ncourts.org to request a speaker for your event. And we're back with everybody's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week, where we decide who the most important or significant person, place, or thing in this week's news is. Colin, why don't you start us off? Uh, who's your Headliner of the Week? Uh, I'm going with a town, uh, which might be the first time we've done a municipality as a, a Headliner of the Week candidate. Uh, but I'm talking about the town of Princeville, uh, which, of course, is the historic African-American town down in Edgecombe County uh, that was flooded during Hurricane Matthew. I went down there last week to do a story about their recovery effort uh, was kind of surprised that uh, they really haven't made a whole lot of progress yet. A lot of the housing is still gutted. The town hall is gutted. The school is gutted. Um, but they're uh, currently working on plans to essentially move parts of the town to higher ground, which is this sort of uh, fascinating approach to dealing with the fact that they've flooded twice, both in, in Hurricane Matthew and in Hurricane Floyd back in 99. Uh, so the state has an option to purchase about 52, 53 acres, uh, about two miles south of the existing town boundaries, uh, where they're looking at relocating uh, town services like the Senior Center, Parks and Rec, the fire station, uh, and then they would have plenty of land left over to uh, have residential and uh, retail and business construction. It actually is close to an uh, exit off of uh, US 64, so they're hoping they can bring in travelers, and then their goal is to uh, take some of the land closest to the river that's likely to flood a lot and try to do some more historic tourism there uh, with some of the uh, fascinating aspects of the city's past. They were founded in in 1865, uh, right after the Civil War, when uh, freed slaves crossed the river from Tarboro and set up on some swampy, flood-prone land, um, and since then has been a historic African-American town in, in North Carolina. So they're hoping to uh, tell their story to more people. Uh, I think they're having a rally this uh, weekend on Saturday with uh, Reverend William Barber from the NAACP. Uh, so they're, uh, as their banner outside town hall says, they're uh, they're rebuilding. They're coming back. And would they just move the buildings all to the other side of town, or would they be building new ones and leaving the other ones as historical monuments, essentially? I think or? they would be rebuilding uh, new ones, um, and then some of the old buildings could be either repurposed by someone elevating the land. It's interesting that the town doesn't want to move everything, so originally the plan was to move the town hall too. Um, that was one that was built, I think, actually right after Floyd, uh, and they've decided uh, that they actually want to elevate that instead because they want uh, the town hall to be sort of at the core of the the historic town. Uh, they do have a town museum that I think also needs to be uh, rehabilitated close to the river. So I guess the question would be whether to try to move that building up because that is a, a historic school and was formerly their town hall that had been uh, used as a museum prior to the storm. So lots of sort of unanswered questions. They've got some help from folks at uh, UNC and uh, NC State who are in landscape architecture city planning departments uh, who've been down there doing some workshops and trying to uh, come up with a final plan uh, that's still uh, a few weeks or months away from being uh, finalized. Okay, and look who's joined us. Uh, it's Andy Spay uh, of the NNO. Um, it's just we're like a, it's like a bluegrass jam in here. You just have people coming in and out and uh, and uh, joining. So why don't you join us for headliner of the week? Uh, who's your headliner? Uh, 
I'm going to shamelessly plug my own work again, but uh, it's on Dallas Woodhouse, who many of our listeners uh, undoubtedly know as the leader of the North Carolina Republican Party. Uh, he's somewhat of a firebrand and is the face uh, often on uh, of the party defending our, our uh, state leaders. Um, and he's the headliner for me because he said something that I looked into this, this week that was Republicans since 2010 have won unaffiliated voters in every election, uh, which sounds like, oh, that, can, that, can, can that be right? Have Republicans won all independent voters since 2010? It, it certainly seemed on the surface that it might not be true simply because we have a Democratic governor. Um, but exit polls and uh, primary participation stats show that he is mostly right. Dallas, uh, uh, fed us some information and we did our own research and found that um, all signs point to Republicans winning unaffiliateds. Now, there's a caveat. Most most unaffiliateds do uh, vote consistently with one party or another. And in our state, they overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly support Republicans. Um, we rated him mostly true because we can only go by exit polls because ba- ballots are obviously private. So there's no way to know for sure how they vote. So we rated him mostly true. Dallas, I hope he's listening, uh, was very happy with this news and tweeted out, PolitiFact, I, I forget his exact tweet, PolitiFact rates Dallas true, rates his claim true. And so we had PolitiFact North Carolina had to point out to Dallas that we did not rate his, his uh, claim true. We rated it mostly true. That is an important distinction in, poli- in the PolitiFact universe because true would mean you're 100% true when there's – in this particular case, there's no way to prove his claim with 100% accuracy. And what's, what do we uh, define mostly true as in PolitiFact? It's basically – it's, it's accurate or close to accurate, but it's leaving out some important context, right? Right. That's, yeah. Whereas and tr- in this case, the important context being that – we don't know how they vote, but we know what they told pollsters. They, uh, you know, we know how they said they um, people who voted said they were independent when they um, talked to pollsters, basically. Right. So. Yeah. Right. So he was mostly right. Generally, the evidence suggests that he is right. However, there's because ballots are private and none of us can go look at how we voted. You know, there's no way to prove it. So. Uh, Dallas, if you're out there, mostly true. Not true, mostly true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Dallas Woodhouse in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner of the week? So I'm going to pick Representative Justin Burr, not because he's been leading the charge in judicial redistricting, but because of how he's using his Twitter account to lead the charge on judicial redistricting. Um, if you if you pay attention to NC poll Twitter, you'll know that uh, Representative Burr is very, very active for the most part, and he's been using his Twitter account to tweet out the maps and kind of give updates. At midnight and one in the morning earlier this week, no less. Yes, so burning the midnight oil. Uh, but he's also taken ire with some media entities and asked them to tweet out corrections or correct uh, stories. So I think it's just a very interesting way he's using Twitter to kind of get the message out about judicial. He hasn't called anything fake news though, so we'll give yeah. him credit for not <laughs> using that phrase. Yeah, we haven't we haven't seen any uh, hashtag fake news from anyone. Um, 
But yeah, no, it's just it's an interesting way to see how Twitter is evolving the way politicians interact with their constituents and journalists. So we'll see what happens in the future if it passes. But and have you been up to see any of these? Uh, have you been awake uh, to see any of these at midnight and one in the morning, or do you uh, oh, catch them the, catch no. them the next morning? Um, if anyone knows me, I go to bed uh, gr- like. At 10 o'clock, even. If yeah. I'm up later than that, it's no good. I think I caught his map tweet at 12.15, uh, and I was uh, immediately was like, oh, darn, the insider went out at midnight. It's too late to put in the story now. <laughs> yeah, so Colin catches all the late-night things, and I just go to bed at 10 a.m. So Whereas Lauren catches the morning things I miss because I'm sleeping. Yes. <laughs> all right. Uh, Will Doran. You're up next. Who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to go with uh, U.S. Representative Mark Walker, who represents parts of uh, Central North Carolina in Congress. Um, he made headlines actually twice this week, um, made some national news. Uh, first time, he uh, he called some fellow women Republican Congress people um, well, he didn't call them eye candy. He said he would call them eye candy if doing so wouldn't be construed as sexist. Um, a lot of people said, wait a second, that's still sexist. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it ironically came, uh, you know, just I think a couple of days after Lauren wrote her story about, you know, uh, women being underrepresented in politics. Um, and he got a lot of flack for that. Actually, he's already got a challenger, uh, Ryan Watts, for 2018, who immediately was sending out emails trying to raise money off of those comments and, you know, saying, hey, women, give me money and I'll hopefully get him out of office. I, a man, can solve your problems. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then uh, Walker was in the news again. I think in the uh, I think the New York Times wrote a story about some comments he made about the deficit, uh, the, the, uh, the tax plan that the GOP is floating um, would, by all accounts, increase the national deficit uh, by a pretty large amount. And uh, someone asked Walker about it, and he said... Uh, I, I don't remember his exact quote, but it was, you know, to the extent of, you know, well, you know, it was easy to campaign against, you know, the deficit when Obama was in office, but now Republicans control every branch of government, so, you know, we don't care as much, essentially. And he later walked that back and said, everyone took that way wrong. I wasn't talking about myself. I I wasn't being hypocritical. I was just talking about, you know, how some people may feel or something like that. So he's been kind of... Uh, you know, finding himself uh, getting in trouble over some quotes a couple different times and getting national attention for it. So he's my choice. Okay. We've got... Where is he from? Which district? I forget. Greensboro. Greensboro. Uh, But he represents a piece of uh, the Triangle, too, Chatham County. uh, And uh, his district goes down, I think, into Lee County. Yeah, it goes basically from the the Virginia line all the way down almost to Fort Bragg, yeah, to to Sanford and that area. I don't think it goes into Harnett County at all, though. Okay. Uh, So we've got in the hat for headliner of the week, we've got the town of Princeville. We have Dallas Woodhouse. Justin Burr and Mark Walker. Um, well, with session coming up next week, I'm going to go with Representative Justin Burr, uh, who's at the heart of this debate over whether we should change our uh, judicial districts, make a huge change to judicial districts for the first time in and something really like is six decades. The one guy behind this, I asked him a couple weeks ago, you know, are you working with other lawmakers and crafting these lines? And he said, no, it's basically just me with some staff. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting that. Uh, given there's a ton of attorneys and even a few former judges in the legislature, Burr is not either of those categories. His background is actually in bail bonds, but he could be the guy who shapes the future of North Carolina's court system. All right. 
So Justin Burr is our headliner of the week, and uh, for Colin Campbell, Andy Spey, Lauren Horsch, Will Doran, and Brian Murphy, I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us next week on Domecast. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 